Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, March 31st, 2016. Every now and then you get a listener submission on your Facebook page <laughs> that you just realize, whoa, we've struck heretical gold. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. Heresies and gold. We've struck a heretical dumpster trove. I don't know what to call it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to compare and see if what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if they're twisting God's Word and generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. And over and again, yeah, we find out that uh, so much of what's being said out there is just nonsense. It doesn't square with God's word at all, yet alone even remotely reflect what God's word even says, period. And uh, today, you know, I, I'm actually kind of having fun this week. I, I I don't know if this is a confession, but I've been having fun because of the fact that we're having good Easter sermons at the second half of the, each program. It means that there's like no way to theme an ep- episode of Fighting for the Faith. And theming is a very difficult process. Just want to let you know, it actually takes quite a bit of time. And since I have a little bit more free reign as far as what we're doing, since I'm not working, I don't have to make every segment kind of work with a central theme. Oh, Nelly. Yeah, oh, Nelly. We've been fighting. <laughs> oh, man. I think we're going to end up doing like the same thing next week as well. Because, you know, all of the whole week next week will be. Um, contestants for the Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Yes, if you have not submitted your uh, contestant entry f- to be considered for next year, uh, for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest, well, you got to get them in and uh, send me an email, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, with a link, and the subject needs to say Worst Easter Sermon contestant, something to that effect, so I can easily sort them, find them, and w- yes, we will preview everybody's submission up until probably Thursday of next week. So we, we have a week left for the submissions. And uh, whew, whew, uh, we're gonna, 
<laughs> we's gonna have some really bad um, uh, <laughs> contestants this year. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I am so sorry. I just know what it is that I'm going to endure and you're going to endure next week. And just the thought of it right now is killing me. So today, another episode, scattershot, kind of potpourri episode of Fighting for the Faith, not themed, so you don't have to worry about seeing if you can connect the dots to kind of figure out what the central theme is. No central theme today. We (laughs) – okay. (laughs) One of – there is a gentleman, and uh, I am very thankful for this gentleman. His name is Arnold Nookie Stewart. Arnold Nookie Stewart. And Arnold – posts really hot leads for really awful stuff on my Facebook wall. And he has become quite the um, prolific uh, lead poster is a a good way of putting it. In fact, if you were to look at my Facebook wall right now, you'd see that there were quite a few submissions from Arnold Snooky Stewart. And I take a look at everything that he submits, and some of the stuff is sitting in a, in a database if we are themed for a particular type of theme for an episode of Fighting for the Faith, and one in particular stood out like a sore thumb. There is a woman, her name is Apostle, I should say, Apostolette, Apostolette Colette Toach, and she... <laughs> She is part of the prophetic school on the internet, the the Apostolic Movement International Prophetic School. And wow, all I could say is that she is the Great Britain counterpart to Patricia King. And and, um, yeah, yeah, we, um, Arnold Snooky. Stuart, you have struck, I don't want to say gold because heresy really isn't gold. You have found a treasure trove of hot, smelly, stinky shmita is the best way I can say it. And um, I have subscribed to everything that this woman produces so that we can revisit her on a regular basis. Today we will be listening to Apostolette. Self-appointed apostolate Colette Toach, as she explains to us the seven ways of hearing God's voice. And we will hear a lot about skinning cats. That's all I can say. That's all I can say. Then we will stay under the – she's going to be a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate uh, member is the best way to put it. We'll stay under the uh, prophetic Holy Orders umbrella and we'll uh, head on over to Patricia King's television program, Everlasting Love, as she interviews one of her guests, Joan Hunter, and they explain how you too can prophesy. You, did you know you can? I didn't know if you knew you could, but apparently you can, and so you need to be, you know. And uh, somewhere in there, we'll take a break. We come back from the break. We have a, uh, a purpose-driven update with Rick Warren, and we're going to play for you a segment of one of Rick Warren's previous uh, Easter sermons. It's not this year's Easter sermon, so it cannot be considered for submission for this year's Easter sermon contest. Just to give you an idea of 
what it is we are looking for for contestants for our annual Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So you know, you'll, you'll get the flavor for it as we listen to Rick Warren. And the passage we'll be looking to as we untangle his twisting of God's word will actually help us in the next segment. And the next segment will be a Stephen Furtick update where Stephen Furtick is doing his best at properly distinguishing between law and gospel and ends up accusing God of committing sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we will. that will make up hour number one. And hour number two, we're going to head down to Broward County, um, Florida, and uh, Gloria Dei Lutheran Church, George Poulos, and we're going to be listening to his Easter sermon from Sunday. It is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Then we're going to head over to Elgin, Illinois, and we're going to listen to the Reverend Mark Bestule's uh, Easter sermon from this past Sunday. Again, mwah, perfect, great examples of Christ-centered, cross-focused, proper distinction between law and gospel, uh, you know, Easter sermon preaching that I think you will be encouraged by, edified by, built up, and just, yeah, absolutely pointed to Jesus and him crucified and raised again for the forgiveness of your sins. And that will round out today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, well, that requires us to do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are, standing in a row Big one, small one, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich There stands me wife the idol of me life, singing roller bell a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roller bell a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roller bell a ball a penny a pitch. Roller bell a ball, roller bell a ball, singing roller bell a ball a penny a pitch. Yeah, that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. That's our prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Music, or at least one of the songs that we use for those types of updates. We are now <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be introducing somebody who I know will be making further appearances here at Fighting for the Faith. We're heading over to Apostolic Movement International and the prophetic school that they operate there. And the self-appointed apostolate, Colette Toach, as she explains to us... These seven ways of hearing God's voice. I should have played the standard warning. I apologize. Consider yourself warned. Do not be lifting heavy, deadly equipment or anything like that during this segment. Here we go. Welcome to one of the most practical courses that you will ever do with regards to the prophetic ministry. That you will ever do. Yeah, okay, wow, I'm really looking forward to some practical prophetic ministry type of courses, you know. Now, hopefully by now you've already listened to the prophetic listening message or watched it. Yes, I have, and wow, I think it might also make it on the air. 
on video or read it. It's up to you, really, because in this chapter and this lesson, we're going to look at the seven ways of hearing God's voice. Right on. Now, we have a, a strange English expression, and if you're foreign, perhaps it will sound very crazy to you. But it goes along the lines like this. It says, there, there is more than one way to skin a cat. Right on. Right. There's, cat skinning can be done all kinds of different ways. I could never quite figure that out. I don't know why somebody... Just so you know, no cats were skinned for this episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're completely PETA compliant when it least comes to that. Want to skin a cat? And what all the different ways are that you could possibly skin a cat? And to be really honest, the entire picture of having to skin a poor cat to me was really grotesque and horrible. But be that it... Then why are you using it? May, it's a very good saying. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And what it basically means is that there's more than one way of doing things. Right. Now, as we start looking at prophetic listening, you've started realizing there's more than one way of doing things. And perhaps you won't go around skinning cats, but hopefully you are going to... Yeah, please, no cat skinning. You know, as a result of listening to Fighting for the Faith, that would be terrible. Learn how to hear the voice of God in, in many different ways. And not just stick to your one cat skinning direction there you know some people just think well i dream dreams i dream dreams that's it and five years later down their prophetic call they're still dreaming dreams it's like move on right yeah i mean would you quit with the dreaming thing already come on there's at least seven different ways to hear the voice of god and if you're just dreaming dreams come on you got you got to move on beyond that you know there's more than one way to skin that poor cat right that's what i was gonna say no, there's more than one way to hear the voice of God. There's more than one way to flow in the gifts of the Spirit. Notice the dramatic pause there. She's Her timing's impeccable. That's my challenge for you in this lesson, is really learning to hear God's voice in more than one way. Why be restricted? And come- yeah, I know. I'm so glad you've challenged me. I mean, I don't know what it is about me, but you know, for years, you know... The only way I've heard, heard God's voice is to read my Bible. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. The only way I've been able to hear God's voice is by opening up the Bible and reading it. It's just terrible. <laughs> I need to, I gotta skin more cats because there's lots of different ways to skin, you know, the cat thingy. Um, <laughs> Um, strongly recommend if you have not already heard the episode of Fighting for the Faith where I play one of my lectures from Norway, Sola Scriptura. Yeah, I'll put a link to it with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. You can just look online. Today is Thursday, March 31st, 2016. Look for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith at fightingforthefaith.com. And in the additional resources portion of the uh, of the episode, you'll see the link where you can hear about Sola Scriptura. Here's the thing. Where can I go today to hear words that I know actually are from Jesus? Now, you got to think about this for a second, because Jesus, in the Great Commission, said to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Mm-hmm. Right, so the discipleship task involves baptism in the triune name of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it also involves teaching 
all that Christ has commanded. And you're going, well, um, are you, is Jesus saying only New Testament? Nope. The reason why is because Jesus, if you read your New Testament, you find out that Jesus is none other than the one true God in human flesh. That's right. He is God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh. And uh, therefore, being God, the question then is, is, okay, if I'm looking for all that Christ has commanded and taught, where can I go to find it? Oh, well, we can go to the whole Old Testament as we have it. Yep. Those are words of God, a.k.a. words of Jesus. And we can go to the apostolic record that itself, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you know, you know uh, all of the epistles of Paul. Then you got the Johannine epistles and Peter, Jude, and Hebrews, and the book of Revelation. And those we know are apostolic as well, being apostolic, they're faithfully well, reproducing the words of God, Christ, and I know those are God's words. So um, after that, yeah, it gets really murky, really, 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 really murky. And um, I'm so I, you know, as a pastor, you know, I'm supposed to only disciple with the words of Christ. So I'm going to go to the only source that I know with any certainty is actually words of Jesus. That would be, well, only the word of God, the written word of God. So that being the case, those arriving in the 21st century claiming to be apostolates, you'll notice that in the first century, how many apostolates were there? Answer, none, not even one. And you go, what about Junius? Yeah, that's a male name. Yeah, and uh, we have from the writings of the church father, Junius was a dude, not a dudette. Anyway, so this woman here talking about, you know, skinning, you know, know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Although I'm sure there is more than one way to skin a cat. Whether or not there is or not really has no bearing on whether or not really, if you've only been hearing the voice of God one way, you know, like from the Bible that somehow you're doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So she started with an idiom, uh, quite an interesting idiom, and I know those of you who do not like cats might like that particular idiom, but regardless of whether or not you feel good thoughts and feelings and warm, fuzzy feelings towards cats or not, um, that has no bearing on whether or not we're we're supposed to believe that somebody arriving on the scene today in the 21st century claiming to hear the voice of God apart from the written word of God is that we're supposed to go, oh, yeah, there's, yeah, because, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. That means that we need to expect to hear from Apostolette Colette Toach, and she's going to teach us, like, all the different ways in which we can hear God's voice. Yeah, I only know of one way that we can hear God's voice and know with certainty that we're hearing God's voice, and that's by reading the written word of God. As a prophet, I know you love the challenge. You love the challenge of hearing the Lord in different ways. Yeah, you know, it's such a challenge. Yeah, 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 I mean, I was so bored with only hearing him one way, you know. Certainly in the teaching that we've done, there's a fantastic description on each way, and I'm going to go through each one. And it's good if you can identify with any of these ways, but don't feel restricted 
by the end of this course, I want you to be right, able to... Whatever you do, don't feel restricted to only one way of hearing God's voice. You know, I feel really restricted because <laughs> there ain't no way I'm going to be listening to somebody claiming to be bringing to me God's voice and God's words and then come to find out they're counterfeit. If someone's claiming to be having words from God... Well, you know, and they're not found in the written word of God. We're going to have to put them through a much more stringent theological audit than the IRS would put somebody through. You know what I mean? Flow in every single one of these areas. It's good for you to be able to flow in all the prophetic gifts. And I know in some of my other teachings, I've really slammed the emphasis on the gifts. But like I've said before, there are tools that you're going to use that are going to help you do your job better as a prophet. So this is the fun part. This is where you get to learn how to use those tools, where you learn how to put it all together. And uh, I promise if you are a prophet, if you have a prophetic calling, just by watching or listening to the prophetic listening message, your spiritual life is going to explode. Explode. Yeah, right after you skin some cats different ways, right? It's just going to, yeah, boom. You're going to start hearing the Lord in so many different ways. The gifts of the Spirit are going to explode. You're going to hear God clearer than you ever have because the anointing on that message is incredible. And myself, every time I go through it, I suddenly have such a new explosion of the prophetic anointing in my life. That sometimes yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do, lady. Yeah, Every time you listen to your own teaching on prophetic operations, you experience explosions. Uh-huh, right, yeah. You want to sneak away and watch it just for that. It's like a, a supercharge, you know, like one taking a shot of one of those energy drinks. Woo! It's like a prophetic energy drink. Woohoo! Gives you a buzz. It, it lets you just experience God in so many ways. You know, it's like being married. You know, there's so many fun things you can do. Yeah, sure. You could communicate by sitting down every day, facing each other and saying, well, let's talk. Or you could go for walks together, or you could give subtle hints to each other, or you could write letters. Isn't it interesting that she's not going to the written word of God to explain to us the seven ways to hear God's voice? In other words, this isn't a biblical teaching. Where did she get this from? Her own head. Each other, or in our case, sometimes uh, my husband Craig and I, we buzz each other on Yahoo, whatever. There are many ways to communicate, and it, it adds a spice to your marriage. It adds a spice to life. Well, it's the same with the Lord. You oh, it is. Why would it be the same with the Lord? Do you have a biblical text that says that? He doesn't always speak in the same way. He speaks in very many different ways, and you're going to learn how to do each one with balance, with maturity, and you know what? What? We're going to have a lot of fun on the, along the way. Oh, I guarantee that. I think you're right about that. It's exciting to hear God's voice. And you're going to discover a whole panoramic view that you just didn't have before. View! Right. You've been like a horse with little blinkers on. You've seen only this much. You've only heard the Lord in one direction. And you thought, that's it. Well, I'm about to bust that wide open for you. And oh, I'm so glad you a whole view that you haven't seen before. So let's take a quick look at the seven ways you can hear God's voice. And I'm hoping that you have picked up your pen and paper and are ready to make notes. Oh, I, I'm ready to go.
or have your Word document ready because what you write down is what you're going to learn. And I do recommend that as you go through each of the lessons, like with the other courses, that you write down and take notes as I share. Just the things that stand out to you, that the points you want to remember, just by writing it down, you're going to solidify it in your spirit, you're going to solidify it in your memory, and when it comes to your final examination, you're going to remember those points a little bit easier. So, right, I can hardly wait to pass the finals in, in profit school. Uh-huh. What's the first way we can hear the voice of God? Uh, the written word of God. And that is through dreams. Well, we have a whole course on dreams. and uh, Yeah. <laughs> Funny enough, the Bible actually warns us about those claiming to hear the voice of God you know, through their dreams and stuff like that. Jude talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. And Jeremiah was a real prophet. Isn't that weird? Visions. So you have no excuse for not being able to flow in this area. Now, not all prophets flow in dreams, believe it or not. No, I had no idea. Oh, in fact, not all prophets flow in all of these at all. You know, each one is different. But you should challenge us so we can start flowing, you know, in all of these different ways. You get some some who are hard dreamers and some who are not, but I'll let you in on a little secret. Oh, please do. I can hardly wait. And I see somebody that only gets dreams from the Lord. You know what it tells me? Um, <laughs> no. It tells me that they're not in the spirit enough. Oh, I should have seen that coming. Yeah, that's right, folks. If the only way you're hearing the voice of the Lord is in dreams, well, you're just not flowing in the spirit enough. <sighs> you poor soul. You poor, poor, unfortunate soul. So sad. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you just went, what just happened? What just, what just, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Pro- Apostolette Colette Toach, she will be making future appearances here at Fighting for the Faith. She, um, I, she's the British counterpart to Patricia King, and quite frankly, I think she's just a wee bit more, um, um, intense and kind of funny and bizarre in all of you know all at the same time. So anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we have Patricia King. We have Rick Warren, and we also have Stephen Furtick. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss him. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church Day Select. 
So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that all those people out there claiming to be hearing the voice of God apart from the written word of God, that they are totally loony tunes. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount of money that you choose. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. And just a reminder, if you have not already signed up for the 2016 PCR Conference, Pirate Christian Radio Conference, Semper Reformenda is our theme and uh, we still have spots open there's only a total of 150 spots so this is the time for you to start making your plans for the second weekend of august to head up to north dakota and uh, visit us over at Kongsvinger lutheran church in oslo minnesota that's where it's going to be held this year and uh, i guarantee you we're going to have a fantastic conference great topics and uh, look forward to seeing you all. So all of the information is there at fightingforthefaith.com. Right at the very, 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 very top of the website, it says 2016 PCR Conference Semper Reformanda Always Reforming. And click on that link and all the information on how to register, where to book hotels, and uh, how to fly in here and all that kind of stuff is available for you. Again, only 150 spots are open for the uh, 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference. Look forward to seeing you. All right, we are still under the uh, general heading of the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. And uh, we're going to be now tuning in to Patricia King's Everlasting Love television internet vision uh television program yeah i sound redundant there as uh, she is interviewing joan hunter and apparently letting us all know how it is that we can prophesy did you know you can you know well, you can hear the voice of god and why are you settling for only hearing one way of hearing god's voice um here's patricia king and joan hunter to explain have you ever received a prophetic word and it just transformed you on the inside? Because No, I haven't. Um, unless you're talking about the written word of God. I mean, there's lots of prophetic words right there in the written word of God. In fact, the whole book practically is that. So, yeah, I guess I have while reading the Bible. 
You knew you had heard from God. I remember as a young believer, I had received words that put such hunger in me for him. Well, if you haven't received a word yet, probably on this program, you will receive a word that will encourage you from the heart of God. Uh-huh. So if I haven't, I will receive at the, by the end of the program, you know, because God's just waiting, standing by, ready to zap me with some kind of prophetic word. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. The bigger question would be, did you know that you can prophesy? Um, where does it say that in the Bible? You certainly can. And today I have my good friend Joan Hunter with me on the set. And you have just published another new book. I mean, Brand you just crank them out, yes. you know, three at a time now. Yes, three and- times. <laughs> yeah, I got to make that money. You got to pay the mortgage, you know. It's a great year. Hallelujah. <laughs> but this one is called You Can Prophesy. Yes. And um, I- Yeah, if the Bible taught this clearly, then why would I need Joan Hunter's book to teach me that I can prophesy? Well, that you're very, very excited about this book because, Joan, as long as I've known you, you have been one who empowers people in the body. You want them to do the work of the ministry. Right. And so you are like a fivefold ministry gift who equips the saints to do the work of the ministry. And of course, you, you have been, um, you, you know, following in your parents' uh, foot, footsteps in that you've been equipping healing ministry and, you know, ordaining them and getting them out there healing the sick she's ordaining people she has the authority to do that really casting out devils and all of that and now you are just opening up this realm for the body to just go in and prophesy so the ones that don't know that they can do it you have hands-on training for them it's and it's so simple it is so incredibly simple for anybody that's familiar with me i know you are it's like you know we just pray for all these people and they just bam 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 one right after the other get healed and people when they come in know they can't do it but by the time they leave they go i can do what she's doing i'm like yes you can (laughs) the word says we as believers are going to lay hands on the sick and they're going to recover the Bible also says that we are to covet to prophesy. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we are all to be prophets and travel all over? Absolutely not. But what it means that that we are to be repeater stations for God. Uh, uh, <coughs> what? We're supposed to be repeater stations from for God. And you're not talking about the written word of God. You're talking about something totally other than that. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. That God will speak to us and be able to prophesy. In the book, which I'm extremely excited about, it teaches you to prophesy over yourself. It teaches you how to prophesy over yourself. Prophesy in public, meaning like to the clerk or whoever. Mm And it teaches you to prophesy over your children. It teaches you how to hear God and quit trying so hard to hear him when he's talking to you very yeah. softly <laughs> and you're expecting this bullhorn, you know, to come. I know because so often people are getting these incredible downloads from God, but they don't realize that it's like how, how, how Jacob said, the Lord was in this place and I knew it not out of Genesis mm-hmm. 28, I think it is. And so often God is speaking and we don't realize realize it so you help uh, yeah so apparently god's out there talking but we don't even realize he's doing it you know that poor holy spirit is just not the best communicator i mean so lame i mean just really doesn't know what he's doing he's up there in heaven going yeah you know um, i i don't know what it is but I, i'm like talking like all over the place and 
why why is nobody listening to me it's like i'm being ignored it's like i it's like i'm not even here or something you know people identify when god is speaking to them yes and and you wrote the forward to the book which i'm so honored (laughs) that you did that Mm -hmm. and i want to just give you all an example of basically one situation that happened to me there's there's it's filled with examples and how to prophesy how to develop the prophetic within you because we need to be able to prophesy everywhere i promise yeah if the bible wanted us to develop the prophetic within us don't you think we'd just be able to like you know open up to third Corinthians and those important passages about prophetic development within yourself and just read them and understand what God really wants us to understand there for my children. And now they'll call and say, okay, what God, what is God telling you about me now? I'm like, well, you're on a need to know basis, you know, but it's amazing. And I give testimony there, how, how God has done. He said, tell them this. And they've said, you know, that's impossible. And and I said, I know it's impossible, but I'm retelling you what God told Give me. Give us some examples. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so now we're off into anecdotal stories about how you can prophesy. Because, well, you know, apparently God told her stuff. Huh. Yeah. Again, notice here what's missing clear passages in context. I mean, if this was really a biblical doctrine, don't you think it would be just super de duper simple for us to like, you know, open our Bibles and open up to these passages that teach us that we're repeater stations for the voice of God and how God is talking and and here's how you tune in so you can hear him, so you can prophesy. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach this. This isn't a biblical teaching. This is a made up doctrine by the Patricia Kings and the Joan Hunters of the world. And if this were truly a biblical doctrine, then we'd all believe this because we'd all recognize this is what God's Word teaches clearly. Fascinating stuff there. All right, moving along, we have a purpose-driven update that requires us to do this. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm gonna look, but I'm gonna find my purpose. Gotta find out, don't wanna wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Gotta find my purpose before it's too late. That's right, you gotta find your purpose. So we're heading over to Saddleback Church. And this was the Easter sermon from a few years ago, and it recently aired on Rick Warren's Daily Hope uh, broadcast. And the name of the sermon is, The Answer is Easter. And Rick Warren is a supreme twister of God's word. And so there's like zero, and I mean this, zero hope that he's going to actually land on his feet rightly handle God's word, correctly exegete it, it, and point us to the crucified and risen Savior uh, on Easter Sunday. So this is an example of what it is we are looking for for this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Here's Rick Warren. Every date in history is actually dated, including your birth date is dated in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time you write a date, you're using Jesus as the focal point. 
When we say 2014, 2015, 2016, from what? From the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even atheists refer to Jesus every single time they write down a date. Now the resurrection of Jesus accomplished a lot of different things. Of course it split history into AD and BC. But the first thing that it did is it it validated Jesus' identity. It proved that he was who he claimed to be. Which is whom? I agree it did that. Who did Jesus claim to be? Throughout history, lots of people have claimed to be God. Lots of people have claimed to be God. Good. So Rick Warren understands that Jesus claimed to be God and that the resurrection validates and vindicates Jesus' claim to deity. This is a good point. But Jesus said, I'm going to prove it by letting them put me to death. I'm going to die on the cross. And then I'm going to come back three days later alive. And I'm going to walk around, you know, Jerusalem for another 40 days. Can you imagine walking down the street and you put him on the cross and he go, he's back. That'd be kind of strange, you know. Uh, Jesus also proved by the resurrection that there is life after death. That death is not the end of the uh, story. But what I want us to look at this weekend is the fact that Jesus gave us a model in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He gave us a model of how to handle pain in life. Uh, what? So, (laughs) Jesus' death and resurrection gives us a model on how to handle pain in life? Really? The Bible says this. You say, where does it say that? In the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 2 verse 21 says this. God has called you to endure suffering. In other words to go through tough times. Because Christ suffered for you. And he says he left you an example so that you could follow in his footsteps. All right. Now there's the passage. I don't know what translation or what it is that Rick Warren is reading that from. But what we're going to do is we're going to put it back into context. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and yeah, you guessed it, context. And they're going to help us to determine if what Rick Warren is saying here, that Jesus's life, death, and resurrection give us a model that we can follow when we're experiencing suffering in life. That, and so the way we'll do this is we're going to look at First Peter chapter 2, and we um, are going to start at verse 18. We're going to continue reading through the end of the chapter and a little bit into chapter 3. So we're going to get a, a larger swath of the context so we can test to see if what Rick Warren is saying, the Bible is saying, is what it's saying. That's a lot of saying, I'm just saying. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So when you do good and you suffer for it, that's what Jesus, that, what Peter is talking about here. Okay. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's what verse 21 says. 22, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, I have to make a note here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 is going to be important for us in the next segment on Stephen Furtick. Note these words, he, Jesus, committed no sin. Very important thing. But uh, we continue. So he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So notice here, it actually is defining what suffering is It's referring to, how Jesus suffered unjustly and did not you know, revile, but in his suffering was actually serving the world, serving you and serving me. So 1 Peter 3, 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and your pure conduct, do not let your adorn, adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is which in God's sight is very precious. Now notice here, it's even talking about how a wife might be called to endure suffering and do good even when her husband is, well, not good, is a good way to put it. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So you kind of get an idea. Now we've looked at the wider context. Let's see if that's what Rick Warren is talking about in this segment regarding how Jesus left us a an example for us to follow when we're suffering in life. In other words, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he modeled what you should do in the worst days of your life. Um, okay, this is getting weird. When you go through the tragedies, the terrible pain circumstances, the days of doubt and depression and despair, he says you need to follow the model of what Jesus did when he suffered. So what's the Jesus model for suffering? Now let me explain. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happened over three days. Friday was the day of pain and suffering and agony. Yeah, but Peter in the context explains the kind of suffering that we're supposed to follow. That means suffering for doing good. That's what he specifically lays out for us there in the wider context. Saturday was the day of loss and grief and confusion and misery. Sunday was the day of joy, celebration, and victory. Now, here's the thing. In your life, you're going to go through all three of those days over and over and over again. Uh, Yeah, no, that's not what Peter was talking about. Some of you right now are in a day of pain. Uh, (laughs) Uh, 
you, you can't you get the idea here this is an example of what a bad easter sermon sounds like some of you are right now in a day of confusion and doubt you say i haven't seen- yeah i'm in confusion right now as to how you got this out of the biblical text if all you if if you had just read the context of first peter 2 you wouldn't be saying this nonsense slightest idea what i'm supposed to do next with- are you in your resurrection day when following the model of jesus's suffering are you still in the day of loss and grieving and mourning my life Hopefully, you'll get to the day of joy. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, because you got to follow the Jesus model of suffering, which means you got to get to the day of joy. <sighs> but you're often going to go through these three days. And when you do, you're going to ask three fundamental questions. <laughs> I am? I, I Really? What do I do in my days of pain? Why am I going to ask this question again? How do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? Jesus did not experience doubt and confusion on Saturday. He was stone cold graveyard dead. There was no confusion on the part of Jesus on Saturday. How do I get to my days of victory? (laughs) no i will not be asking those questions you kind of get the point here i mean this is a perfect example of how not to preach christ crucified and raised again for our sins and for our salvation i mean this is like totally missing the point of any biblical text and just preaching what comes to your mind rather than what's in the Bible. Yeah, really, the Jesus model of suffering. You know, you got to get you got your day of pain and suffering, then you got your day of doubt and distress, and then you you got to figure out how to get through that so that you can get to your day of joy. No. No, no, no. No, that is not what Jesus's death and resurrection is about at all. Thank you, Rick Warren, for giving us a perfectly great, succinct example of what not to preach on Easter Sunday and what to look for if you're trying to figure out whether or not your pastor or the pastor of your friends or your family members are, you know, preaching Jesus or not. If that's what they're doing on Easter Sunday, I guarantee you the rest of the year it's going to be that bad or worse. Yeah, you get the point. Moving along. Yeah, time for a Stephen Furtick update. You walked up to the pulpit Like you were a man of God You came strategically cut the new style The beaver was fake and hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor And you're so vain You probably think the Bible's about you you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. 
to a portion of a sermon he delivered back in July of 2015 titled, It Works Both Ways. And in this sermon, we are going to hear Stephen Furtick make the claim that apparently God sinned. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, by the way, if God ever broke the law, his holy law, then God has sinned. If God lied, he sinned. And, well, then God needs to punish himself and He's no longer God. You see what I'm saying? It's a, God cannot sin. But we're going to hear Stephen Furtick trying his hand at exegeting a portion of the book of Romans to make the difference between law and gospel. And uh, so he thinks the gospel is that God loved us so much that he broke the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is whew, really bad. Here we go. God is a better father than me. Goes without saying. The, the way he runs the universe is interesting because he had all the leverage. It was called the law. The law. The law that we couldn't fulfill. His perfect righteous requirement that we couldn't measure up to. Now he's right about that. We do not measure up to God's law. We cannot keep it. You're trying to justify yourself or be justified in the eyes of God by your law-keeping, you ain't going to make it. You are destined to hell. He had all the leverage in the world, but he did something so strange. He, He walked away from his leverage when he sent his son. Paul would say in Romans that what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. What does that mean? The law wasn't enough leverage to change a human heart. Because try as we might, we could not keep the law. And a lot of us try to change our lives, and this is how we do it, and this is our view of religion, and this is our view of God. We want to use the leverage of the law to change us. The leverage of what we ought to be. The leverage of what we're not. And then that produces guilt, which produces short-term change. But it's not enough leverage for lasting change. Now, again, I'm going to agree with him. He's actually making a pretty good point and uh, pretty much summarizing accurately what the limits are of the law. The law really is powerless to change you. It can accuse you, it can make you feel guilty, and somebody can feel really bad because they're not measuring up, 
and for a season might actually experience some kind of progress, pull themselves up by their bootstraps kind of stuff. And, but in the long term, it ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. And that's not, by the way, what regenerates us, nor is it what justifies us before God. We need a different word than the law. The law does not save. I'm going to say that again because God is all over what I just said. The law is not enough leverage for lasting change. Not in our hearts and not in our world. There's a lot of talk right now about how the church is going to change the world. You know, the world's going to hell. And what are we going to do about it? What's the church going to do about it? Well, if we're taking our orders from headquarters, we won't use the leverage of the law to try to change the world because the law was powerless to do it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can almost say amen, except for I know what's coming. So, you know, it's one of those things where if I didn't know what was coming, I'd be sitting there tempted to think, wow, somebody gave this guy like a class on biblical exegesis. I'm impressed. So, so you can crank on that leverage all you want to, but it's not enough leverage to change your heart. How's it going to be enough leverage to change the world? God says, I want to use a different kind of leverage. I want to use the leverage of love. Um, what? Now, this is where he starts to go wrong. Now, it's true that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. This is what Scripture says. So I, you know, I understand he's trying to figure out a way to kind of unpack the love of God here as being the solution to the fact that the law is powerless to really change us. I know his sentiments, I know what he's doing, but where he's heading is into the land of actual heresy. We continue. Because love will take you way further than the law ever could. I'll prove it to you. Let's say... Your child is in a horrible accident. Let's say they bust their head wide open on the monkey bars. And they fall off the monkey bars. The monkey bars are like 30 feet high. I'm making this an extreme example. And they fall down and they bust their head wide open. And you scoop them up and put them in the car to get them to the emergency room. And on the way to the emergency room, every sign you see says uh, speed limit. How much attention do you pay to the numbers beneath the speed limit in that moment? Those numbers mean nothing to you. Why? Because somebody that you love is in trouble. And in that moment, any parent will break the law for the sake of love. Any human parent. Uh, Okay, yeah, that's true. We'll break the speed limit laws to get our loved one to the hospital so that, yeah, I I agree with that. But are you saying that God would break his own law? Really? We'll break the law for the sake of love. And what will really turn your heart to God is not when you hear his laws, which were given for our good, by the way, but they were powerless because there wasn't enough leverage in our action to keep the law. So that's because we're sinful by nature. The law doesn't have the leverage to change our sinful hearts. God did when he sent his son. And this is why we get excited in church. And this is why tears fill our eyes when we think about Jesus. And this is why the gospel is still good news in the world today. Because God broke the law for love. 
Yeah, no, uh, God did not break the law. If God broke the law, then God would be acting contrary to his nature, and he would not be God. Um, and keep in mind, I read the passage, I'll reread it here. First Peter chapter 2, uh, regarding Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ actually fulfilled the law. He did not break it. For Stephen Furtick to literally claim that God broke the law shows that Stephen Furtick actually doesn't know what the gospel is. The, the good news is not the good news that God broke the law so that he can save us because we were powerless to save ourselves because we didn't have enough leverage because of the law. No. What he's saying here is not the gospel. This is something convoluted and nonsensical. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. No, God would never sin by breaking the law. I mean that he scooped you up in his arms. I mean that he's carrying you in his grace. I mean that what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his son in the likeness of a sinful man. Yeah, but God didn't break the law by doing that. Yeah, I think you get the point. Uh, this is just a hot mess of, you know, nonsense is what it turns out. And, you know, showing once again that Stephen Furtick is clearly not qualified to be a pastor. He is not studied, showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly divide or handle the uh, word of truth. No, he um, he thinks that God broke the law. Wow. What a mess. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to listen to two more really good Easter sermons to close out this episode of Fighting for the Faith. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. 
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. For the faith, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. Details forthwith. Let's do this right. Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's two good Easter sermons. The first comes to us via Gloria Dei Lutheran Church, Davie, Florida. That's in Broward County. Pastor George Poulos uh, presiding. The name of the sermon is Jesus is Risen for You. Second sermon comes to us via Pastor Mark Vestual out there at uh, Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. His sermon does not have a title, but both of these are great examples, Christ-centered, cross-focused, exegeting the biblical text, proclaiming Christ, crucified, risen, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Not some kind of weird model that you're supposed to follow in order to, you know, experience, you know, how to overcome grief or, you know, bad days or things like that. I think you get the point. So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Pastor George Poulos and his uh, Easter sermon from this past Sunday. Here we go. Alleluia! Christ is risen! Alleluia! In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. In the name of Jesus, Amen. We have just sung it. We have sung it boldly, beautifully, and proclaiming the truth. I know that my Redeemer lives. That we sing because we know this truth. But think about those women that first Easter morning. Those women did not know that truth. They went that morning looking for a dead body. 
They went that morning expecting a dead body. They knew that there was a corpse waiting for them that still needed the ritual purification that is due a good Jewish man. They didn't even have those spices to anoint his body when Jesus was crucified. Quickly, they removed Jesus' body from the cross so that his death would not coincide with the Sabbath, which was just hours away. And so, in its final preparation for proper burial, they hadn't had enough time to do everything they needed to do on that Friday. Everything happened so suddenly. Everything seemed to be to them a blur. That was a terrible, awful place that they would never want to go to again, except they had to anoint Jesus' dead body. Furthermore, they didn't know how they were going to get to that body. They knew that the big stone had been rolled in front of it, too large for them to move. They knew that the signet ring of the Roman procurator was upon that stone. And so they would have to appeal to the Roman soldiers to somehow, some way, listen to their plea and cry, remove the stone so that we can anoint his body. Would they even do such a thing? They did not know. They didn't know what to expect. Even when they would get there, they would see there that the stone had indeed been rolled away. There, as they stood... An angel appearing as a young man sitting at the tomb tells them the good news of the resurrection. And yet it still doesn't sink in. They were too confused to rejoice, too astonished to think straight, to know what to think. They simply did not know what was happening They did not know what was going on. They did not have the ability at that time to know how it was they were going to put all of these pieces together. Death. Oh. Death. Death they knew. Oh, they knew death all too well. Death gripped their minds. Death gripped their hearts. Death gripped them with their sadness and their grief as they came to mourn. The dead Jesus. You've been there too. I know you have. I've been there. You know exactly what those women are going through. Someone they love deeply and dearly is dead. You know what it's like. You hear that phone ring at an odd time in the early morning to hear that a loved one has died. You stand by the body of one whom you've loved as a husband or a wife, a sister or a brother, an aunt or an uncle. And you look and you know things from now on are changed. You stand by that hole in the ground and watch your loved one lowered into it. You listen on the news and you hear of more massacres, more assaults on people who happen to have the Christian faith. Murdered, all in the name of some false god. Death grabs us by the throat and it grabs us every day. Sometimes it's sudden and sometimes that death is drawn out. Sometimes it's expected. Sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes the one who has died is very, very old, and you look and you say, well, they lived a long life. And yet sometimes the one who has died is way too young. And for those that we love who die, no matter what age, they are too young to die. Like those women, death we know. Death grips us. Death surrounds us. Death and its sadness and its grief. But today, today, today we look death in the face. Today we look death in all of its trouble, all of its destructive terror, all of that it can bring to us death and all of its misery. We look death in the face and we proclaim, I know that my Redeemer lives. And those women and those disciples that gathered there at the tomb, they too would soon come to realize Jesus' tomb was empty, not because some grave robber had come to rob the body, not because some gardener was there gardening and decided to move his body to a different place, not to move his lifeless body somewhere else, but because death could not hold Jesus. Death could not hold the very one who Isaiah has said has swallowed up death in victory. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus paid the wages of sin in full, paid the price, atoned for sin in full, then death was stripped of its power and Jesus rose to life again. Death, death is no longer the terrible, final, unconquerable end for all men and all women. Death is now the servant to Jesus Christ. Now, should the women and the men there at the tomb of Jesus known all of this? At least of Jesus' resurrection? Well, perhaps. It certainly was in accordance with the Holy Scriptures. St. Paul said it so very clearly. It was predicted of and told of in the Old Testament very clearly. The resurrection of the dead foreshadowed this. Jesus even raised the dead to demonstrate he had power and authority over the dead by just his word. They looked at his miraculous action, not in some great grandiose show, but by his word. Arise. Arise. The Psalms and Isaiah and other prophets spoke this truth as well. Jesus himself told his disciples three times that he would rise again, that he would die, and that he would rise again. This, after all, was God's complete plan. His plan all along, finally, now, accomplished. Jesus risen from the dead. Sin, the grave, death, Satan, and hell now lay defeated at the feet of Jesus. For Christ is risen. I said Christ is risen. Alleluia. Death no longer holds victory over us. Death no longer holds a sting over us. St. Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ died and was buried. And after that, he says that now some have fallen asleep. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful set of words in the word of God? That we've fallen asleep. 
For now, that is what death is to us. Its finality is defeated. Death has been transformed into sleep for us. For the Christian, when we are united with Jesus Christ, we fall asleep in death and wake up in paradise. And you, you baptized in Christ, are united to Jesus the Christ. For as we remembered last night in the vigil of Easter, your baptism united you to Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. He joined you in death to provide for you the resurrection unto everlasting life. He promised it to you. He promised it to you in the waters of holy baptism to promise and give to you everlasting life. He gave to you this gift, all his gift to you. Nothing you could do to earn it. Nothing you could do to demand it. All gift to you. And so when faced with death, you can say boldly, I am baptized into Christ. Death does not own me. Death does not own you. Christ Jesus owns you. I am baptized into Christ. Death is not the end. Life is. I am baptized into Christ. My sin cannot condemn me, for Jesus Christ has forgiven me. I am baptized into Christ. And there is no hell strong enough. There is no grave deep enough. And there is no devil terrible enough to separate me from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus my Lord. I am baptized into Christ. I know that my Redeemer lives. His grave is empty. And so will your grave be as well. What comfort, the hymn writer said. What comfort this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Comfort, not only to face death, to face it head on, but to live life. To live life as God has equipped you and empowered you and gifted you to live life. To live not afraid of what tomorrow might hold, of what tomorrow might bring into your life, but knowing that because I have a Redeemer, a Savior, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who is taking care of my greatest need, then Jesus will be with me with all the other needs of my life as well. Now, we don't usually speak of our Savior Jesus taking care of our needs or needing our Savior's help in our times of prosperity. Though we may acknowledge that God is the giver of such good gifts and such good times. But in the times of prosperity, we seem to want to go at our own and think somehow, some way, we've amassed this because we're so brilliant, we're so thoughtful, we're so able. But maybe, just maybe, it's especially at those times of great prosperity that we need Jesus and his presence most of all. For how easy it is for us to allow ease and comfort and wealth and success to cause us to forget about the Lord Jesus and cause us to cling to these various things in life as some kinds of false gods providing for our needs instead of what God has provided. Believing somehow, some way that our lives depended on these things. But as we remember this day, 
Our lives depend on no one but Jesus the Christ. But Jesus the Christ alone. For it is Jesus who gives us life now and life forevermore. Our life from birth and our life after death. Or again, as the hymn writer put so beautifully as we sung it, He lives and grants me daily breath. He lives and I shall conquer death. Daily breath. Jesus, our Lord, gives us daily breath. One day, one day, that breath, it will be gone. It'll be taken away. And yet Jesus is the Lord and is the giver of life. We confess it in the creed every time we gather. Only he is the Lord and giver of life. Oh, we think we are. We think we're in control. And sometimes there are people in the world that will try to tell us that they are in control of their lives and they don't need God or this religion thing. (laughs) Very funny. We want to define for ourselves how we're going to live, how we're going to do things, and when we're going to die. But that is not up to us. That is not up to us. Your Lord God created you here and now to be his blessing to those around you. And in his time, our Lord will close your eyes to the sleep of death and our Lord will gather you to himself and give you rest. For he is the one who loves you more than you even love yourself. His empty tomb. His empty tomb preaches so loudly and clearly this truth to us today. It wasn't Pontius Pilate. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. It was not the Roman soldiers. It was not the sealed tomb that was in control of Jesus' life and death. Jesus is the one who controlled his life and death. Jesus had the authority to lay down his life, and he did. And he had the authority to take it up again, and he did. And because Jesus did lay down his life for you on the very cross, and today take it up in the celebration of the glorious resurrection, you have nothing to fear. Did you hear me? You have nothing to fear because I know and you know our Redeemer lives. He laid down his life for us. That was the message that the angels told to the women gathered at the tomb. Do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed. And even though they heard that from the angelic beings there, they were afraid. They were alarmed. And sometimes we are too. And of how much joy and of how much life that fear robs every one of us. Jesus has come to restore that joy. Jesus has come to restore that life, that no matter what this world will throw at you, no matter how much in despair, no matter how difficult things will be, no matter how much doubt, no matter how much uncertainty, no matter how much of the death seems to descend upon you, you can look at this in the face, in all of its terrible face, and say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day, one day you and I are going to be like that Israel. The children of Israel, when they arrived on the eastern shore of that great Red Sea. 
Now on the western side of the shore, they were filled with fear. Fear gripped them as they looked over their shoulders and they saw Pharaoh and his army coming after them. They knew that death was right there before their very eyes. There was the Red Sea before their eyes. But by the word of God, the sea is opened and they pass through the sea to the other side. And as they watched and they looked back over their shoulders and watched the water crowd over Pharaoh and all of his chariots and his army, the waters of the Red Sea enfolding Pharaoh and that hated army crashing down in their death, utterly wiping them out. The children of Israel rejoiced, and their rejoicing is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures in Exodus chapter 15. There they proclaim, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. That is our song of faith. That is our song of faith here and now because of Jesus Christ's triumph. But one day, one day, when we get to that other side of eternity and join our friends and family members there who have gone before us, we're going to look back and we're going to see how Jesus Christ has completely swallowed up all of our enemies. And that truly, truly, all along, all along, when we fretted, and when we feared and we contemplated our own death, that we had nothing to fear at all. Nothing to fear at all. And that you might more confidently believe this truth of God. Your Lord Jesus Christ comes to you today. He comes to you in his holy word, in his declaration to his apostles and to us. He comes to you not for the reminder of death. But he comes to you for the reminder of life. Your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes to you today in his body and his blood for you to eat and for you to drink for the forgiveness of your sins. Not his dead body, not his dead blood, but his living body, his living blood, born of the Virgin Mary, hung upon the cross, laid in the tomb, and now risen from the dead. He puts here for you now the power of his holy word, his word to you. A feast even better than all of Isaiah's richest feasts, the greatest feasts that you could possibly join and join on earth are but a pittance compared to the feast you will enjoy in Christ. For this is the feast that gives to you the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the forgiveness of sins and life from the dead salvation from the enemy, that you may know, that you may believe, that you may be confident that you have no fear, that your song, your song, not just on Easter morning, but each and every day, your song may be, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know, for Christ is risen. Yes, he is risen indeed. He is risen indeed for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now may the peace which surpasses all human comprehension guard and protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
All right, sermon number two is uh, Pastor Mark Bestial. Here we go. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, after three years of learning at the feet of Jesus, why would the apostles find the words of the resurrection to be an idle tale so that they did not believe the women's report? What an initially condemning statement upon these men is recorded for the rest of human history. Can you imagine years later as the Gospel of Luke begins to circulate to have to read these words about yourself and be reminded of your initial reaction to the glorious news of the Gospel you now hold so dear? How mortifying. How humbling. And yet how true. Maybe even for you today. With all the pomp and circumstance of the Easter liturgy, with everyone in Sunday best, with the sanctuary specially adorned, does it sometimes seem to you as if we're simply trying really hard to make an idle tale seem more real? As if this is perhaps simply heightened drama to make long-standing human traditions more meaningful, that perhaps we're gathering to celebrate the climactic work of a wonderfully accomplished production throughout this Holy Week, but an idle tale nonetheless, almost like an expected blockbuster film premieres in glitz and glamour while the world shrugs, well, it's just a movie. If you find yourself here more for the drama of the story, Unless for the for you history, you're not alone. And if you don't think that really describes you in the least, if you say, no, 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 that's not, that's not me. Well, if you don't think that you struggle with unbelief at all, then why do your efforts of sanctification in the Christian life not always reflect the joy of justification? Do you take this gospel home with you? Or does daily life quickly return to doubts and anxieties and fears and short tempers? It does. You can admit it. And you're not alone. The disciples, for how many years, especially John, who lived to about 100 A.D., for how many years had to be reminded, whenever they read Luke's account, had to be reminded of their own former unbelief. But just as for their humiliated hearts, so also for yours. There is forgiveness, even for doubt. The good news of Christ's resurrection does not come naturally to our ears, nor does it seem possible to our intellect. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So hear anew the word of God. Christ is risen. Remember how he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And friends, he accomplished it once in history. All for you. Now, ironically, it's that final phrase, the for you, that is hardest to believe. 
even within Christendom, how many are taught by poor doctrine not simply to rejoice in their status as beneficiary, but to now strive to do their share in somehow completing the merit of Christ's sufferings? How many find it more palatable to be co-worker with Christ rather than co-heir with Christ? But here, in the proper understanding of the relationship between Good Friday and Easter, we have the simple truth of salvation by grace alone. You are not a co-worker with Christ, but you are co-heir with Him. This is why the crucifixion must always be front and center in our learning of theology. For it prevents us from adding to grace alone. The empty tomb is meant for us to share the benefit of. But if that empty tomb is our theological starting point, and we then work backward, we cast that sharing onto the cross. But the sacrifice of the cross, we cannot share the burden of. It clearly proclaims salvation by grace alone through Christ alone. On Good Friday, there is no such thing as suffering with Jesus. We must stand at a distance and realize that He must bear it alone. For our sake, for our salvation, He must bear it all alone. Where we try to help through our supposed piety, where we try to be co-workers, we rob Him of His glory and bring to nothing the sacrifice of the Lamb upon God's altar. And so, penitently, we stand idly by, our pride being humbled to realize how completely my salvation does not rest with me, but it rests completely outside of me. If I desire to be saved, I simply cannot and must not attempt to intervene. If I desire to be saved, I have no choice but to place my hand on his head and acknowledge that I am the sinner for whom Christ dies. I can take no delight, no self-satisfaction in, no pride, nothing of the share of the burden of Good Friday. But, where Christ is alone in his saving work, after it is finished, after everything for salvation has been complete, then he chooses to share with you in the inheritance. And suddenly everything, all the benefits, directly apply to you as co-heir with him. Here we are full partakers, co-heirs, sharers with Christ. This is what St. Paul says when he says that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. Once Christ is dead, the sacrifice complete, and he is buried in the family tomb in which no one has yet been laid, in which all the family members' shelves and tables lay bare, and only Christ is in the grave all by himself, then by baptism, it's as if I'm transported to that holy Saturday and laid there, and I take my place by him. And I am given my place there by grace, so that whatever happens to Christ the next morning happens also to me. 
Doesn't Paul say this when he says that in baptism we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ? Where Christ has written us into the will and sealed it with his death, then suddenly on Easter we are raised into the beginning of a new creation in which whatever is Christ's is yours as well. Suddenly you can very truly put yourself in his shoes and say, if this is what happens to Christ, I am co-heir. So that he is not risen for himself, but for me. Therefore the benefit must be mine as well. How much joy ought be ours as beneficiaries of the will and testament? How much joy is ours to have this little title, co-heir, affixed to our name? If we are baptized into Christ's death, then we rejoice in his resurrection because he has made us shareholders in it. If his body and blood is risen from the grave, then not only does he live according to his resurrected body and blood, but so do we each and every time we partake of the supper. And because of this truth, this supper is no mere memorial of a sacrifice long ago dead and gone, but it is our present tense benefiting from the resurrected body and blood of our living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we rejoice in Christ's resurrection, not only because it means that his sacrifice was sufficient, but also because it anticipates and guarantees our resurrection. In other words, faith in the resurrection does not bring joy only in the past, but especially in the future. Perhaps this is one of the subtle understandings about the relationship between Good Friday and Easter we don't meditate on often enough. In one sense, Good Friday is not so much about the past and the future. It's about what was accomplished in the past for the present. I don't mean to suggest Good Friday has nothing to do with the future. It most certainly does. It has everything to do with the future. But in tying Good Friday to our future glory and jumping right over to our future glory, we must not accidentally imply that it does not already benefit us now. Friends, justification is a present tense reality. The death of Christ does not make you hope to be justified. It justifies. You can leave the Good Friday meditation knowing exactly where you stand with God because of what Christ once accomplished for you. Christ crucified is all about our present tense certain reality, present tense certain comfort. It is the pillar and cornerstone of our faith because it does not just point us to the future, but it declares that what was accomplished in the past benefits us right now. You are at one with God. No accusation can condemn you. You can freely admit and repent of all the sins that ought drive you into the depths of hell, and you may hear with your own ears the forgiveness that is yours here and now. The blood of the crucified does not merely point you to a future hope to be saved. St. John says that it cleanses you. Present tense, here and now. It cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Good Friday is all about our present tense certain benefit. It tells us that by his death, Jesus has sealed the testament. And Easter, Easter shows us that Christ lives to distribute the inheritance of 
the Testament. And that means Easter is all about our present tense certain hope for the future. It's sort of living in the now and not yet. Now in the sense that what benefit Christ has gained, we are certain belongs also to us co-heirs by faith. So that St. Paul can say we have been raised with Christ. But it is the not yet in the manner of which the same St. Paul speaks in our epistle. When he says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Easter may certainly speak to justification in the sense that Christ's resurrection verifies that his sacrifice took. But you might say it speaks even more boldly the victory over death, one day to be ours, because we are co-heirs with Christ. This now-not-yet reality is on full display in a life of struggle and affliction and sufferings. You all know, even a life grounded concretely in justification knows its share of suffering. Yet it's a life that eagerly looks forward to the final victory that still awaits us. When the justification the soul already knows in a clear conscience before God is shared with the body and its own victory over the grave. And then will our full human nature experience what is meant by that phrase of faith, I believe in the life of the world to come. This harmonious tension, if you will, between the now and the not yet. The now reality of our justification in Christ's death. The not yet reality in our eager anticipation of our resurrection. This harmonious tension is one we must not only learn to live with, but we may rejoice to live in. We learn to live with it as we experience the boundless joy of Easter being tampered by the problems of everyday life. And yet, even within these constant and lingering problems of daily life all about you, you may rejoice to live in the harmonious tension of the now-not-yet that is yours. And we live in it by the comfort and sustenance that is ours through the testament of our crucified and risen Lord. His testament, sealed in the past, with inheritance for us co-heirs in the future, strengthens and comforts and encourages us in and for the present. Even as our liturgy teaches us. For example, how often do we speak of the foretaste of the feast to come, in which we hint at the anticipation of future glory while also taking great comfort in present certainty and benefit because of the sacrificial salvation accomplished by Christ crucified in the past. In fact, think on this this morning when we pray the prayer of thanksgiving. That's that liturgical prayer following the Sanctus. This prayer you have come to recognize based on its beginning. Blessed are you, Lord of heaven and earth. That first line was the beginning of an Old Testament prayer included in the Passover Seder meal. The prayer went like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments. Modern day Jews still use that prayer. 
But when Christ fulfilled all things, our focus no longer need remain on commandments and earthly bread, but rather on what Christ had accomplished, past, for our present reception, as it carries us toward that final future gathering. And so the prayer now is redeemed from its Old Testament limitations. And a very similar beginning gives way to a much more heavenly reality, sealed in the work of the crucified. You'll hear it in a few moments. Blessed are you, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have had mercy on those whom you created and sent your only begotten Son into our flesh to bear our sin and be our Savior. Past. With repentant joy we receive present. The salvation accomplished for us by the all-availing sacrifice of His body and His blood on the cross. And then, gather us together, we pray, from the ends of the earth to celebrate with all the faithful the marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom. Future. What joy and certain hope is ours. So that we even eagerly anticipate again after the supper when we pray, keep us firm in the true faith throughout our days of pilgrimage, that on the day of His coming, there's your resurrection, friends, on the day of His coming, we may, together with all your saints, celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom, which has no end. So, friends, this glorious Easter morn is not simply the culminating day of Holy Week, as if a week-long drama production, but it is the eighth day the day of new creation, the picture and promise of the resurrection of all flesh, the first fruits of what is to come. To be sure, it's about Christ's resurrection, but as co-heir, it's about your resurrection. As Paul says, in fact, Christ is risen from the dead, and then Paul ties that directly to you. The first fruits of those who fall asleep. Such is no idle tale. Because you can believe in the proclamation of the morning, Christ is risen, therefore you can, in the face of all of this life's struggles, hardship, pain, loneliness, guilt, and grief, you may nevertheless defiantly rejoice. If Christ is risen, then I too shall conquer death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard. This edition, or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.